0: So, as you might have expected, uh, we're about to begin. So uh, Firstly, let me just uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us. Um, If it's not immediately clear from the um, uh, statement there inside your program, uh, this is a live Podcast session, so we're recording uh, everything that's uh, said and spoken here. Uh, so please do know that uh, the microphones are hot, as they say. Things are things are recording. So uh, try not to yell out uh, uh, unless it seems really justified. Um, in order to get us started, let me first introduce myself and say a little bit about uh, my podcast, and then I'll pass the microphone over to uh, my colleague in this um, in this experience. Um, My name is Winston Thompson. I work at The Ohio State University uh, and let me just say a bit about my podcast, Pipeline. Pipeline is or has been a monthly short form interview program in which I record interviews with folks who work at the intersection of philosophy and education. I use the past tense there because the podcast is in the midst of something of a transformation Uh, the podcast is transitioning away from profiling individuals towards uh, profiling issues Uh, this session today uh, might be one of the first of those uh, episodes so you're um, uh, you're able to witness uh, uh, a real pivotal moment here Um, The work that I do is largely uh, social and political philosophy, issues of ethics. Uh, I've got a focus on questions of justice um, as they relate to education. Uh, And so I tend to bring a lot of that into the uh, interviews that I do and into uh, some of the issues that I hope to profile into the future. And I guess that's just about enough about me, and I'll, I'll pass the microphone now over to David for a bit of an introduction
1: as well. Thanks, Winston. So my name is David Knapp. And I'm the Assistant Director of Research and Evaluation for the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I've counted before, that's 45 syllables, my full title. So I'm David from Merck, in short. Um, first of all, if no one's told you yet, welcome to Richmond. We're so happy that you're here. Richmond is an awesome city. We love our city, we love our schools. Um, and uh, Merck is positioned to work with several school divisions in this region in metropolitan um, Richmond area so uh, the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium we're a research alliance with the VCU School of Education and seven school divisions in metropolitan Richmond we were established in 1991 uh, we currently work with seven school divisions so we work with Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan and Richmond um, and as a researcher, it's really exciting because the context for each of the school divisions varies considerably, so we have suburban school divisions that we work with, we have rural school divisions, um, and then we work with Petersburg and Richmond Public Schools, which are both um, urban public school divisions. We uh, work with a, a council of superintendents and school division leaders and research directors from each of our school divisions. It's our policy and planning council. We meet quarterly, um, and they identify immediate and enduring issues that are facing their education and students, and we design and execute research studies to address them. Um, So it's very much impact-oriented research work that we're doing. Um, We have three studies going on right now, so we're very busy, Uh, 2018 was a really big year. Uh, One of them focuses on racial disproportionality in school discipline, so the higher likelihood of black students to be subject to exclusionary discipline in public schools. Uh, We have another one focused on professional development for success and culturally diverse schools. So the idea that um, schools in our region, like other parts of the United States, Um, are rapidly diversifying but our teacher workforce is still predominantly white and female so making sure that we have the tools that teachers need to be able to provide the um, kind of support that students need. And then we have our latest study which is focused on teacher retention which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about today because we had a um, a special session with uh, Doris yesterday that we're going to be referring to here um, shortly. Uh, So our studies are executed by research and study teams. So the research teams are led by VCU School of Ed faculty And doctoral students. Um, Some people in the room have worked on some of our studies before. Um, And they bring a lot of theoretical and methodological expertise to our studies, but we also have study teams that are comprised of um, representatives from the school divisions that are um, it's a range. So we have teachers, we have principals, we have folks that are um, leading discipline for the school divisions, um, other school division leaders that serve on these study teams, and they bring a lot of practical expertise to the study. So we, from our conceptualization of research, that really enhances the rigor of the research that we do because we have the um, the theoretical conceptual perspective and the practical perspective. And Allison, who you're gonna meet later on, is um, a teacher in Hanover County, and she's on one of our study teams because teachers have all kinds of free time to do study teams, right? Um, So we're really grateful for her. Um, We disseminate our research in a variety of ways. So there's the traditional research reports, which you can see there's some of those in the back um, that you're welcome to take extra copies of that we have. Um, But we also experiment with different ways of disseminating our research. We have an annual conference that we love where we bring together folks from research practice and um, policy and education. Um, We do webinars, but we also have a podcast um, because everybody has a podcast now. Um, Ours is called Abstract and we explore issues in public education. Um, We were established in 2016, We've had about 50 episodes so far, um, and we have conversations with members of our research and study teams um, to talk about some of the topics that we're focusing on in our studies, but we also have conversations with stakeholders in the community. We do special sessions connected with our conference every year, and every once in a while, we're lucky enough to record a live panel discussion that's a collaboration with Ohio State and Bodoin University and VCU and Hanover County Public Schools. So. Um, one of our foundational principles is about multiple perspectives, so we're really thrilled for this opportunity. Um, we'll refer to this in more depth later on, but we had a really great event with Doris Santoro yesterday um, with our study team to discuss her framework from her book, but also an exit interview that we're drafting um, for our study uh, related to teacher retention, um, so understanding some of the factors that are causing teachers to stay or leave in our school divisions, and we're going to be talking about that later on. Um, But without further ado, I think we should introduce our esteemed panel. So I'm going to pass this down to Winston to get the introduction started.
0: Thank you. So Doris Santoro is an associate professor at Bowdoin College, where she serves as chair of the education department. She teaches courses in educational studies and teacher education. Her philosophical and qualitative research examines teachers' moral concerns about their work and their moral arguments for resistance. She's taught high school English in Brooklyn and San Francisco, GED prep at an alternative to incarceration program in Manhattan, and has worked as a bilingual literacy consultant in Jersey City. Doris's book, Demoralized, Why Teachers Leave the Profession They Love and How They Can Stay, is based on a 10-year study to understand educators' moral concerns. This book offers concrete strategies that can be employed by practitioners, school leaders, and policymakers to retain experienced teachers and make a difference in the lives of students. She's also co-editor of Principled Resistance, How Teachers Resolve Ethical Dilemmas. So welcome, Doris. Thanks for joining us.
1: Um, all right, and so to my left we have Jesse Sinishall. Uh Jesse Seneschal is the director of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium. He and I work together every day. Uh, through his work with Mark, Jesse has led a wide range of applied research and evaluation projects in close collaboration with surrounding Richmond area school divisions, local nonprofits, institutions of higher education and state agencies including the Virginia Department of Education and the State Council for Higher Education for Virginia. Uh, his current projects include a study of professional development for se- success and culturally diverse schools, teacher retention and a study of a new teacher uh, preparation program for urban teacher residency. Um, he's also led regional cohorts of teachers conducting action research in their schools. In 2016, Jesse served as the principal investigator on Merck's Understanding Teacher Morale Study, which we have copies of here that you're welcome to take, um, which explored the factors that influence teacher job satisfaction and morale. Uh, prior to his career as an educational researcher, Jesse spent 14 years teaching in public high schools in Chicago and Richmond. Welcome, Jesse.
0: And Allison Fleming is a senior teacher at Lee Davis High School in Hanover County. In addition to teaching Spanish, she's the mentor coordinator for her school and works with the new teacher induction committee at the county level. Prior to being senior teacher, Allison has taught at the elementary, secondary, and post-secondary levels. She received a bachelor's degree, a bachelor's of arts in history, bachelor's of arts in foreign languages, an MA in foreign languages, and an MA in secondary education from West Virginia University. Allison serves as the serves on the study team for the Merck Teacher Retention Study, enhancing the rigor and practical implications of that research. She's also a veteran of uh, the Merck podcast where she was featured in an episode in January about their study along with other members of the research and study team. So thank you very much for joining us,
1: Allison. And let's get started with the conversation. Uh, Jesse, so tell us about, a bit about the Merck Teacher Retention Study How did it come about and what is it that we're planning to explore?
2: Okay, thanks. Uh, So as David mentioned, um, I work with Merck and uh probably once a year we have we have our policy and planning council come together which is the leaders from all the school divisions we work with and they um, brainstorm a, a number of topics that are of critical importance to their decision making to things that are going on in their schools and their districts and um, usually the list is 20 30 items long and then they narrow it down to the most critical topics that they think where they think research, could really help inform the ways they think about the policies they're making, the practices they're implementing in the schools. Teacher retention made that cut. Okay, so it's it's obviously a, a topic that, of course, we know across the country, is is um, a pressing issue. The the conditions of teachers' work is um, is is apparent. Uh, the poor conditions of teachers' work is apparent on a number of fronts, um, and I think there's a lot of concern among regional leaders that they need to um, do what they can to think about how to make teachers' work. Uh, more fulfilling, how to keep teachers in the profession longer. It has all sorts of costs, and so we um, we took that on, uh, and w- what we did is we put together a research team that's made up of um, a number of faculty members from VCU School of Education. There was a lot, actually a lot of interest in this topic from our, our faculty. We have a number of grad students that also signed on. There's a, I, was, I was surprised about how many grad students have taken this on as a dissertation topic, and we have a lot of folks that are doing research on um, teacher, teacher work um, within our School of Education. And then we put together the study team, and, and we, have, um, we have teachers, we have some HR folks, um, we have some people that are in professional development, um, all people that, in one way or another, their work intersects with the work of teachers. And so it's it's great working with that team because we can see um, sort of see the, the nature of the problem from a lot of different perspectives. So we spent um, the fall and through the winter. Uh, well, no, mostly the fall. I'm um, designing the study. there's two major components of it. One is trying to understand what's going on. Why are so many teachers leaving? Why is there so much mobility? Um, And and the first thing that we're gonna try to tackle with that is relates to the quality of the data. Um, It's one thing that's really not tracked well at all. Um, Both at the state level and the local level, there isn't um, really good systems for looking at how teachers are moving, where they're moving, if they're moving between schools, and and what are some of the factors that might be leading them to do that. So we've been working with the state, um, Virginia Department of Education, uh, to get whatever workforce data they have and get a clean data set where we can track individual teachers over time to see their mobility patterns. Um, We've also been working with the local districts. We had a call with all the data leaders from the local districts and um, learning about their data practices, which which vary. Um, from district to district. but ideally what we're going to try to do is put together a data set that will allow us to look at the trends and patterns um, to see where uh, what schools teachers are moving from and compare it to school demographic data, compare it to accreditation data to look at uh, where what are the schools that teachers are moving from? where are the, where are the schools that they're re- being retained? what is sort of what are the individual characteristics of the teachers that are moving related to experience level, um, the demographic background of the teacher. So that's a piece of it. The other piece of it is uh, what's not captured in any data right now is the workforce experience, or the experience of teachers in their workplaces. Um, there's not really good uh, school climate surveying going on, and so we're gonna do a, a couple initiatives. One is the exit interview protocol that uh, David mentioned earlier. Um, we're gonna be trying to do a regional exit interview, and, and a, a sort of a robust one that really kind of gets at some of the those critical factors around teachers' experience of their work, You know, having t- a lot to do with professional culture and leadership practices and policy. Um, and then we'll be eventually developing that into a, a regional survey that will go out to all teachers in the Merck region um, that will get a really good picture of um, the factors that are, that are um, helping them find fulfillment in their work or not. And then the idea would be to triangulate that, to look at the teacher survey data in relationship to the data from the, um, the quantitative data that we collect from this, uh, the secondary data. And that would really allow us to get a good understanding of how how the uh, retention patterns are happening and also how different schools might need different things in that regard. The second piece of the um, study is uh, a policy um, evaluation analysis. And what we want to do then is look at this is a crisis in the schools right now, and, and they're trying to do a lot of things. They're putting mentoring programs in place. They're rethinking their PD models. They're doing all this. But if they, if they don't evaluate those programs and know if they're working or not, then that's a problem. And so we're going to start to do some initial evaluation of the work they're doing using the, data that we've, that the database that we've collected. And so we'll be able to say, if you're implementing a, a new mentoring program in these schools, is it um, leading to more teachers sticking around? That's, so that's, we can answer questions like that, which I think are pretty important questions because then it becomes, are they investing in the right types of initiatives? That's the, um, the large trajectory of this study. It's probably gonna, ta- it's gonna be going over um, a couple years uh, and there'll be um, different pieces coming out along the way. So stay tuned for that. But it's a really exciting study. We have a ton of people working on it, which is, which is um, really good. And we also have a lot of buy-in from the districts. And so we're gonna have a lot of, a lot of access to data and a lot of access to school sites Um, And so I think there's a potential for it being impactful in that regard.
1: Yeah, just a quick follow-up, Jesse. So our council made a good point about um, we don't want to do another study where we're just identifying that there's a problem. What are we anticipating the impact of this study to be to actually kind of move the needle on this issue in Metro Richmond? I think just the piece around getting people's data in order
2: is a a good one. I think if we can get uh, school districts to keep better data on this to do a better exit interview, for example, that's going to be impactful. But I also think the evaluation piece is critical. If we can give them information back that will allow them to develop more um, coherent policies related to this, I think that could, be a, that, that could be a real impact. And I think another thing that Merck studies tend to do, because we have so many people involved and, we, and we're so outward facing with our studies where we're always, communicating with divisions, we're putting out policy briefs, we're putting out research briefs, we have our podcast, we've got a really visible website. It's, it's going to become a community conversation over these next two years. We're going to be talking about retention again and again and again and again. I think that raising the level of awareness around the issue is going to get um, more people engaged and um, hopefully you know better decisions being made along the way. So we'll see. But I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. More than I've, more than I've been in the past.
0: Well, thanks for that answer, Jesse. I mean, in some ways, it sounds as though, you know, having identified some of uh, the issue uh, regarding teacher retention, uh, we might also want to reflect on some of the concepts that we use to make sense of uh, uh, the phenomenon, um, if you will, of uh, um, uh, teachers leaving the profession. And so I have a question for you, Doris. Um, We often hear people uh, describe or discuss uh, issues of teacher retention and make reference to the concept of burnout, and as I understand it, You uh, move away from thinking about burnout and uh, uh, favor an account of demoralization. And I'm uh, just curious if you might say something about the difference between uh, those two concepts and uh, perhaps how that might allow us to make sense of uh, some of what's going on in the Merck study.
3: Great. So, you know, I want to acknowledge that there is a phenomenon that is called burnout. Um, But what I think the problem is when it comes to teacher retention um, and teachers' um, dissatisfaction with their work is that that has become an omnipresent response to teachers' concerns about their work. And so if we think about what burnout is and, and take that metaphor fairly Seriously, we might think of it in terms of a candle. And so you get this candle and it tells you, you know, when you get the, when you, you know, look at the package that this is a 40 hour burn or something, right? And so you can decide how long you're going to keep that candle for. You are going to let the little nice smell come out for an hour and then shut it down and then you can conserve that candle for a while. Or is it going to be that you are sort of thoughtless about using that candle, and it and it burns down fairly quickly? And so, in in that metaphor and thinking about teachers, you know w- what that suggests of teachers is that uh, it's their personal responsibility to conserve those limited resources that they are apportioned. You know, are you a twenty-hour candle or are you a forty-hour candle? And and then you know. Uh, the, then there are all kinds of strategies for avoiding burnout, for burning all the way down. Um, the reason that we need to avoid burnout is because when a candle burns all the way down, what's left? Nothing. Um, so there's, there's no more to draw upon. Um, and so I think for teachers, it matters a great deal that we think about like, okay, what are the implications of burnout? Um, burnout also suggests that a teacher has no more to give um, and, and that the remedies for burnout, you know, are a number of things from that are suggested in you know, most of the teacher-oriented literature. And it could range from like developing a yoga practice, you know, uh, meditating more, um, having better boundaries. And these are all good things to do, right? Like these, the, the but those are not going to solve the problem that I talk about, which is demoralization. And the problem is, is that the demoralization and burnout have incredibly similar symptoms. Um, you are exhausted, you're frustrated, you're feeling Angry, Um, but what is different about demoralization is it's not a problem, it's not the inside job problem. Um, It's a problem of the context of the work environment. And it's the fact that in demoralization, a teacher can no longer access the moral rewards that they previously enjoyed in the work. So when I talk about demoralization, I don't talk about it in the sense of being really bummed out, right? The, that everyday sense of the term demoral, you know, oh, I feel demoralized by that. Um, I mean it truly in, in if you take the prefix and the root and say to be taken away from the moral, to not being able to access those moral goods anymore that are part of uh, the practice of teaching. And I don't mean that, uh, demoralization is not um, one of those things of, oh, I had a tough day. Um, It's not episodic. It is chronic and persistent, um, and that it, regardless of what one attempts to do, in order to resolve the problem, um, it's ongoing, that you can't access those rewards. So it shifts that sort of locus of responsibility from just on the individual teacher where an individual teacher ends up feeling terrible if they're saying, oh, look, I'm burnt out, look at all the things I'm trying to do, and it's not working, versus this is a, a problem of interfacing with the um, context in which you are teaching. And that could be the policy context, that could be um, the leadership context, it could be mandates around practice that are happening in your school.
0: Thanks for that, Doris. I mean, it sounds as though you're describing, in some ways, uh, in noting that the symptoms uh, between the two are so similar, it seems as though it's going to be really difficult to get a, a, a strong sense of which we're dealing with in any particular moment. Um, but it also sounds as though you're suggesting something about um, the source of uh, uh, demoralization being systemic. It's, uh, as you say, contextual. Um, can you just say a little bit more about that? Um, uh, the circumstances that may be con- Contributing to the sense of demoralization. I mean, why is it the case that we're seeing demoralization now? Is this the case? Is it true that we would have seen demoralization at any point in the history of education? Uh, is, there, is there a specific or fairly specific set of circumstances that are occurring now kind of creating uh, this perfect storm that leads to teachers feeling uh, demoralized in this very pervasive way that you describe?
3: I haven't said it this starkly before, but. Um, I think I can in, in in this room and on these podcasts is that I think you know we that teachers go into the profession um hoping to Uh, with with moral motivations, right? And those moral motivations might be they want to, you know, uh, they're other regarding in the sense of I want to help children or I want to care for children. Um, They may be civically minded. Um, This is is about giving back to society. Um, Or they may even be out of um, sort of appreciation for a discipline, right? Math is beautiful and I want everyone to be able to see the beauty of math. Um, so teachers go in with these moral motivations. I think the problem that we're seeing is that we are in a uniquely amoral time uh for um for teaching practice that the uh, mor- that the moral purposes of teaching in many ways have been evacuated in forms of of pure um a, a, of purely con- content dispensary, um, a teacher is content dispensary, or that there are particular modes of what counts as being as moral that are dominant that leave no space for teachers to um, enact other kinds of ways of um, of being moral. So an instance would be um, I think a discourse of you know it's our duty to ensure that all students um, achieve on testing, um, and that is a moral that is a moral claim. Um, but a teacher who says, um, "I want my students to achieve, but not at the expense of um, fostering a sense of joy and wonder." Um, those are competing claims, and there's little space for those, um, for multiple discourses about what counts as moral right now um, in teaching.
1: All right, thank you. So, um, Allison, uh, as a senior teacher at Lee Davis High School in Hanover County, uh, you already have a lot on your plate. What led you to get involved in a research study about teacher
4: retention? What an excellent question. So it's really two things. I'm, I'm very passionate about teacher retention, and that comes with my work with new teachers. And looking at the national data and national research, we know that the attrition rate of teachers within the first five years is staggering. And when coupled with retirement, you're looking at a complete reduction in experienced workforce. And that's important because the more experienced a teacher is, the more impact they're going to have on that student's ability to achieve. It's just, it's that experiential knowledge that can't be earned any other way. And the fact that we're seeing attrition at up to 50% a year 11, which is what we saw at the Teacher Retention Summit in Virginia,
3: Mm.
4: that's astronomical. And the impact of that could be exponential. Because it's not just that experienced teachers positively impact their kids in their classroom, and they certainly do, but they also impact the new teachers coming in their building when they choose to share that knowledge and those experiences, and choose to help them as they adjust and learn what this profession is like, have, how to navigate the highs and the lows and the systems of it all. I can't imagine a better thing to do an educational research study looking at the condition in the, sort of the state of the teaching profession right now. Secondly, I had the wonderful experience of taking Jesse's action research class for my um, teacher leadership program. And when I say it was wonderful, it opened my eyes. I i am so enthused with action research because it allows those of us who are practitioners in schools and who work within a classroom, it gives us a voice, it gives us a way to help others understand what we're seeing in our classroom, what's working well, what's maybe not working, issues that we might see or trends across you know, cohorts even. And it's empowering because, well, teachers, we like to talk, I think as a general rule, that's a pretty good consensus, but not everybody responds to qualitative data. There are people who really need that quantitative to be able to understand especially those who work at the system level and it's exceedingly important that teachers speak up and take part in that because we're the ones that really see what happens in the classroom we're the ones that see what happens with kids in their time in our school because we don't get to keep up with everybody but we keep up with a good number of our children while they're there and you need that knowledge in order to better understand what's going on and the only way that works is if people like me join studies and encourage others to join studies as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, so at at Merck we're really committed to the idea that we want to make sure that the research that we're doing is positively impacting the work that you do, that we're providing the support that you need. So um, I'm wondering what is it that you need from educational philosophers and researchers? How could we best help your work and what you do on a daily basis?
4: please come talk to us. (laughs) We are a wealth of qualitative data and information and trends. And we've seen, especially those of us who have taught for more than five years, we've seen the trends that have come out from all sorts of different areas. What philosophies are popular? What strategies have been advocated? Sometimes they revisit us under a new name. And, you know, why did they disappear the first time? We can give you that sort of living memory, if you will, to help understand. And, you know, we all as teachers have a particular personal philosophy of what is good education not just what is good education in general what is good education for my kids in my room for my context and not all of us will be john dewey's and create you know leave such a profound stamp on everything but we can provide you with kind of what we see and why and why we have these opinions and researchers Please help us communicate with the data folks in this world and philosophers. Help us to refine what we're seeing and help us connect that with other contexts.
0: Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Allison. And building on Allison's uh, comment here, I've got something of a similar question to pose to, uh, to you, Doris. Uh, so from the other side, right, uh, as uh, a philosopher doing work in education, um, what sorts of, to your mind, what sorts of uh, impact can philosophers have on the, these sorts of issues? I mean, is it, is it the case that uh, we ought to aim at sort of personal uh, shifts or changes in, in, in personal perceptions? Should we be uh, attempting to uh, uh, sort of uh, chip away at structural issues? Uh, should we be trying to uh, assist in uh, revisions to policy? I mean, uh, what is the role? Asked in a very simple sense, what's the role of philosophical research uh, uh, in this in this direction?
3: Well, I think there are many roles for philosophical research, you know, and, and I think that, you know, there when it comes to if we want to um, address problems that are happening in classrooms, then it helps to talk to teachers, as Allison said, in order to find out what those problems are and how they are currently understood and discussed. Um, Because it was by immersing myself in the discourse of teachers that I could then put on my hat as a philosopher, as a philosopher of education, and look at how the language was being used, look at the concepts that were being relied on in common understandings and explanations, and then offer some alternatives. um, That I also then tested out with teachers as well, you know, so in qualitative research that would be called a member check, you know, And but, I, but it was important for me to create concepts that would resonate with teachers because those are the folks who I'm interested in talking to, um, that would resonate with them and then that would help, uh, that would be transformative for them in some ways. And you know, the, the most gratifying thing about doing this work has been to have teachers from all over the country write to me and say, you've transformed how I understand my problem. Um, and it's helped me to um, find ways through this problem. I don't always have the answer of what's the way through, but I think that at least that naming um, and that reframing can be really powerful. Um, And and it's a place where it acknowledges, at least in this situation, um, what teachers with the commitments they bring, and and how those commitments um, might be challenged. I don't know if I could have done this work if I set out to do this work. I think I had to happen upon this work, and so, what enabled it, the conditions that enabled it, were that I was willing to be in dialogue with teachers and that I recognized teachers as having experiences and wisdom that I need to take seriously. But if I said I'm going to um, do some work that's gonna matter to teachers and I'm setting out to do it right now, I don't know if that kind of intentionality would have gotten me very far.
0: And that's fascinating. I mean, I'm curious about whether or not that is a uh, sort of a necessary. Well, so so you mentioned, uh, you know, that the you've had teachers who've reached out to you to say, uh, you know, I'm so happy to have found this work. And then you are also articulating that uh, you sort of came to this work in a way that was somewhat unexpected, not necessarily intentional. And so I'm curious about the degree to which uh, you know philosophers can engage in this type of work uh, in ways that are intentional, or whether or not there might be a way to ensure. That that uh, teachers are going to uh, make their way to this work, right? So it's not just that uh, folks are sort of happening upon it and uh, uh, researchers are happening to do it, but uh, is there a way to sort of uh, turn this ad hoc process into something more intentional and institutional such that uh, the philosopher perhaps has uh, something of a a permanent seat at the table uh, in dialogue and discussion with teachers?
3: I think we can have a permanent seat at the table if we mind our manners. And I think that connects with what uh, was in the first general session today around intellectual humility. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we, at least my experience, I, I, I hesitate to use the royal we in philosophers, but for, for, for my experience has been that I say, let's, Let's try to figure this out together. Let's learn more about what's going on here together um, without the advanced promise of I'm going to be able to fix this for you because I'm a philosopher king and that's what I do. And so my experience has been that teachers want to think conceptually when it ends up being of significance to their daily, work. You know, and 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 I have to say that my inspiration from that came from when I was a grad student at TC and I saw Maxine Green speaking to hundreds of teachers at Lincoln Center. And I realized then that teachers want to be engaged with the philosophy and want to talk to philosophers, but it depends on how that conversation proceeds, and um, and so for me, I've never seen the divide um, in terms of theory practice. What I think it is is um, one of disposition of how do we approach each other, and you know when um, when I uh, approach teachers with the attitude of help me understand this, things go really well.
1: All right. Thank you, Doris. Um, Jesse, in 2015, we launched a related study titled um, Understanding Teacher Morale, this report right here, and that report has had over 4,000 downloads since its release in, the December, in December of 2016, uh, making it one of our more popular reports in the history of Merck in our 25 year history. Uh, What did we learn from this study and why do you think so many people have resonated um, or um, uh, resonated with the findings? Um, And a quick follow-up question I'll go ahead and um, ask. uh, Since our council selects new studies, um, knowing that we had already studied understanding teacher morale, why do you think on top of this study they thought it was important to study teacher retention as a new study?
2: Yeah, it's interesting, it it came up twice um, because it's a big problem, you know, they want want to solve it. but with the morale study, I think we, what I can say about the morale study is I think it, it, it aligns well with um, what Doris is sort of putting forward in her book. Um, at the core of the morale study is this idea that um, underneath our definition of morale is a definition of job satisfaction, teachers' job satisfaction. And teachers find job satisfaction when they are teaching when they are connecting with students, when they're when they're doing what we think of as authentic teaching tasks, they're delivering their content and, and students are engaging in that. But that role of being a teacher is also embedded in their relationships with their students. And both of those things need to be in place, the, the relationships and the roles and their engagement with their students. And that same dynamic, and, and we know this from, well, I know this from the study because when we ask teachers, uh, where, where do you find satisfaction at work? They would say, oh, it's in those aha moments or it's in the time when I'm engaging with my students in the classroom. And so they would talk, They would tell stories about this, and we would record those, and this is is how teachers are defining satisfaction. But it wasn't just in the classroom. There was also, they would talk about their um, professional roles outside of the classroom connecting with their colleagues, and the quality of the relationships with their colleagues. They would find satisfaction in in sort of authentic collaboration and collegiality um, in in the context of schools. And so teachers' professional work was being defined in those two spaces, in their classroom space and in their professional culture space. Um, and what uh, and so what, when we get to thinking about what might um, bring down teacher morale, what we're looking at is how the policy context especially, we were interested in both the social context, social community context, like how the, the, the types of students that um, teachers are working with might, um, you know, have influence on the ways they were able to enact their role of teaching, for example. But there was also the policy context which was always negotiated by a principal. The principal was sort of the the gatekeeper of policy, of of system-level policy, of state-level policy. And teachers would talk about policy in in, uh, several using, uh, that kind of fell into several categories. One was the coherence of the policy. Did the policy make any sense to them? Um, How did it affect their load? How much work they had to do? Uh, How did it affect their sense of fairness? Um, Did they felt like they were getting treated uh, equally to the other teachers around them? Um, did it affect their autonomy, their ability to make professional judgments, and also issues of compensation and recognition? <clears throat> those were the sort of the categories. And the principal was the one that, that was able, a good principal, what a good principal would do is they would, they would take that sort of policy environment and they would navigate it in ways that allowed teachers to, to not have dissonance with any of those areas. Because any one of those areas could have in, interfered with their ability to teach or interfered with their ability to cl- uh, collaborate with colleagues. And so with the core, one, one thing that I, I, I'm not hearing a lot with Doris's work, but I think is probably there, and I think it'd probably be useful kind of to consider this relationship, is the idea of teacher professionalism. And when I was seeing, um, the, the where I sort of ended up with the teacher morale study was that, really what we're at right now is in a sort of a, a conflict of sort of uh, teacher professionalism, where teachers have certain ideas of what, what prof- the professional work of teachers means, um, but there's a lot of forces out there that are defining teachers' work externally. And so teachers are being told, here's what you teach, and here's the pacing guide, so you know exactly when to teach it, and here's how you assess it, here's the test you need to use for it to assess it. And, and every part of their work is sort of being, they're being deprofessionalized on all those fronts, and they're, so they're not able to get to the spaces where they're enacting their work, where they're feeling withdrawn from what really sustains them, which is that interaction with their with their students and their, their collaborations with their colleagues. And so that was really at the core of the study. Um, and, it, and so professionalism has been like a really kind of critical piece here for me. Um, and it also makes me think about one of, the, one of the core concepts when I'm thinking about professionalism, I'm sort of thinking about it related to like um, Schoen's idea of reflective practitioner and um, also some Schulman has some frameworks around professionalism. But at the heart of that and this gets to the point about how do how do philosophers connect with educators. Well, um, teachers are are teachers are always working in the in the abstract. They're always kind of thinking about abstractly, here's an idea I have about how to implement a lesson or here's an idea about how how, how to um, you know what a collaboration might look like and then they're also engaging in the practice at the same time. It's the praxis piece. That's what professionalism is. You're taking you know, the, the uh, general rules and concepts of, of um, what it means to be a teacher, and you're enacting them in these very complicated contexts. Uh, and so teachers are always kind of trying to resolve that tension between theory and practice. That's what they do every day. And having them, giving them opportunities to engage in conversations with people that can help them expand their frameworks is always welcome, you know? And it's, it's something that we should be doing more of. I think the reason that they asked for a teacher retention study is because I think they were very excited about the teacher morale study because I think it was kind of interesting, but it just led to an insight. It didn't lead to any action. It didn't lead to like something like a, a concrete, tangible policy. Although we had some recommendations at the end, it was a typical sort of research report that was heavy on the analy- you know, sort of the descriptives and not really... Um, good at kind of giving a plan for here's what we do next um, and that's why this teacher retention um, study we're really focusing on the nuts and bolts let's get your data in order let's get your let's start evaluating the initiatives you're doing let's start to see from a real practical level what we can do to start changing the nature of the, you know thinking about this framework and and so the survey for example that we're going to be putting out in the fall is going to be informed by the teacher morale framework so we'll be asking about coherence, autonomy, fairness, all these things to the teachers to understand if those are the things that are driving. If that's the case, there's a good case to be made for te- uh, principal professional development. Principals are key here. So let's do a, b- a principal professional development program. So I think, I think the work wasn't finished. The teacher morale uh, study was done. The work wasn't finished. We're going to be trying to continue it and really kind of push it into ways where it'll, it'll be hopefully, potentially, you know, uh, more impactful. <laughs>
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for that, Jesse. I really like what you said about thinking about professionalism and also thinking about principles there in the the very sort of end of your your comment. And so I've got a question for Allison uh, from the position of uh, a person who's had uh, something of a leadership role, of course. Um, What would you say that an understanding of demoralization and the way that we've been talking about it here uh, this afternoon and the ways in which uh, Doris has sort of um, uh, done some of that conceptual work, uh, how would you say that an understanding of demoralization might shift some of the relationships that exist between teachers and other teachers, or between teachers and administrators, or between teachers and students. Just, uh, I I guess, my question is, uh, how might an understanding of demoralization uh, kind of transform or um, uh, change these relationships?
4: You know, Doris, when you said your goal was to say, help me to understand this, boy, did you get it right on demoralization. Because as I was reading this, I thought, how validating is this concept described by Dora Santora? Because it echoes what I have heard working with different teachers through different districts and through different states. It is not that they don't love teaching. It is not that they don't love their kids. And It is not that they don't love their content. But they are struggling. And I think it has taken a long time to have somebody help us to really voice and tease out. What is the nature of our struggle? And I can't begin to tell you how impactful that realization was. And in looking at teachers to teachers, you know, we we have this, I don't know what you want to call it, false concept of the burnout teacher who doesn't care. It's time for them to go. They're grouchy. They don't want to deal with anything. But how many of those are really just teachers who are so frustrated because they know they can do more? They know they can do better. They can be more impactful. And as teacher to teacher, I'm sitting sort here of thinking, I a, need to listen because they could be onto something. Again, you know, observational data, qualitative data—it's relevant. What is it that they're seeing? Is it a methodology that's not working? A resource that's not working? A structure that's not working? I need to listen to understand more, and also extend that. Maybe I share that some of those same frustrations. You know, there's there's a lot of power in being validated, knowing that you're not alone. Because when it's just you feeling this, you wonder if this is the right place for you. When you realize others might feel this way, then we can talk about change, and we can talk about how to positively impact change. And with administrators, you know, that's the other piece. Those are the those are the individuals who can help reach those of us in the classroom and help us connect with those who have more systematic control, and help us talk about how to positively impact change and how to navigate that process. And also have the conversations is is this dissatisfaction that you're having with what you feel is not right for your students where is this based from talk to us about what does this look like how do you see it falling apart Is there other things that would work better? Is there educational research that supports it, that adds illumination to it? Is it, it works perfect in this context, but maybe this context, and is there a substitute? And that's really a conversation that has to happen between admin and teachers, because again, we all get a small piece of the pie, and we get to see maybe a small window of the big picture, and it's when you combine those windows that you really get somewhere. I think it will help improve student relationships, because as long as you can realize what I'm feeling is frustration because I want to help you more, and either I don't have the right tools or I don't have the right tools right now. Those of us in the classroom, if there's one truism, it's that we care deeply about our students. It is, the job is too costly in terms of energy and effort to be there otherwise. You know, it's, it's a big investment that we give these students. And so in terms of understanding, huh, the struggle that I'm feeling, this is not just me being tired from staying up grading papers, it's not just frustration of the situation, It's there's this conflict between what I believe is good education and what I'm giving you right now. That's not, that's going to, A, empower the teacher to listen more to the students and give the students a chance to voice, hey, here's what I need, and also propel them forward and maybe finding something that's going to really click with that, which is ultimately going to improve education on the whole. I just wanted to say one thing,
3: one thing that I learned Um by doing this work, um, that transformed my uh, relationship with teachers. As someone who has a teacher education program, where we rely on asking teachers to be mentors or to come in and teach something, and you know if. In the model of teacher burnout, and if we also think about the role of uh, intensification, you know, Andy Hargraves has talked about the intensification of teachers' work. One of the things that we used to talk about in my department is, oh, we don't wanna ask that teacher because they already have too much on their plate. One of the things I learned by doing this work is that teachers want to and need to be connected with um, people and organizations and opportunities that enable them to highlight um, the values they bring in that work and enable them to uh, embody and share those values. And so instead of going to a place where in burnout we would say let's not put another piece on the plate, With demoralization and thinking about remoralization, which that's something I didn't talk about, is that, you know, there's nothing left with burnout, but you can remoralize a a teacher's practice. A teacher can have their practice remoralized. And um, one of the things that can do that is by involving them in meaningful projects, whether it's like the Merck teacher retention study, whether it is serving as a mentor um, to a student teacher, that these, rather than a burden, it might be a lifeline. Um, So that was something that um, I did not expect to find, but that I I took away from this experience.
1: All right, we had, One final question for the panel, but um, in uh, uh, considering our time and because we have so many amazing questions from this audience, I think we should hop right into it. Um, The first question from anonymous, um, might the recent wave of teacher walkouts slash strikes have any capacity to remoralize the teaching profession? So good segue from what you were just talking about Doris. Anybody on the panel?
3: Yes. I think, you know, one of the things that I think is re-moralizing about the teacher strikes is that the teachers are articulating their beliefs about teaching and sharing those in community and then making those public. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that gives me great hope is that for the first time in decades, um, the public is, um, is on the side of teachers. Um and is listening to teachers. And I think that um, that there is great momentum building um, across the nation, about teachers not just articulating, you know, although teachers can often strike only for salary, all, of the teacher strikes so far have been about much more than salary. You know, they are about articulating core beliefs about what public education should be and what teaching needs to be um, and what students deserve. And so um, I think doing those, um, taking those actions in solidarity with others um, can be incredibly remoralizing.
2: Yeah, I would, I would agree with what Doris said. I think the idea, especially the idea that teachers are fighting for sort of broader um, ideals of public education through the work they're doing with the strikes is, is um, right on point. I, I also think about, when I, earlier when I was talking about the teacher morale study, I was talking about how teachers' professional identities uh, are, are sort of um, about what happens in the classroom. Much of what we talk about is in the classroom, but it also sort of um, engages their like engagement with uh, uh, their um, professional colleagues. But there's also a teacher leadership piece, which is really critical, which is often not, it's not taught in the ed schools, there's not like a teacher leadership class in ed schools as you prepare to be a teacher, but there should be. <laughs> there really should be a thinking about, like, how do teachers mobilize and become critical voices in decisions around policy and around how schools are structured and what the what the aims of education are. Those voices arise organically, but there's not um, sort of systems and structures in place, either either from the Ed school level or the um, district level that's really encouraging that, and so I, I would I would say that um, these mobilizations of teachers are really kind of tapping into I think that energy is kind of has been building up and it's it's ready to ready to go, but I think we need to kind of it within our, our structures of our schools build build more of that in systemically.
4: What a great comment! I was just thinking I, I love both of those comments and, and teacher leadership is my thing. I, I got to go through and do the meta cohort to get it as an endorsement on my or designation on my license, so. It, it's very meaningful to me. And I have seen how being able to assume a teacher leadership role with different people has had them reinvest within the system and be able to improve education. And definitely advocacy is is one of those many pathways and it's probably the one that gets more publicity. But it's not the only one. And they all have impact. I'm thinking as teachers profession, we talk about mentors, we talk about working on research programs, we talk about Basically, any time a teacher is offered a seat at a table and they take it and they use their voice to make their concerns and their highlights and their thoughts, you know, whether they be questions or plans known, that's a form of accuracy. And the more we get teachers to engage in that across the level, wherever we can find a seat at a table, the more you're going to find them reinvesting within the profession and, you know, rededicating themselves to what they see as the purpose of public education.
0: Um, it seems that from the questions that we've uh, gathered from the group here uh, that folks are really interested in thinking about the ways in which perhaps uh, this uh, rise of uh, uh, teacher demoralization uh, might be owed to a scientific or some types of scientific uh, engagements with research that is to say that there are uh, particular structured protocols that need to be followed in very particular ways and that perhaps uh, that then translates into the work of teachers needing to sort of adhere to a script, a schedule in a way that sort of hollows out uh, the core of the profession in the ways that we've heard. There are also some comments that seem to suggest that perhaps uh, teacher demoralization is, in the present moment, intentional, uh, that there is uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, some intent to uh, drive away the sorts of teachers who uh, uh, might be most passionate uh, uh, in the service of perhaps promoting some sort of market um, approach to the profession of teaching. I I also heard from some of these comments uh, that, that we've been collecting a sense of the future and a worry about about the degree to which uh, teachers might be pre-demoralized and how we could work towards avoiding pre-demoralizing teachers as we explain to them that there is a real system that they are going to need to struggle with and against in order to do the work that they care so much about. So uh, I just put that constellation of questions about the past, the present intention and uh, potential solutions uh, to the panel.
2: Um, uh, I would say um, to the first two, I, I'm, I'll, I'll let Doris talk about the um, the, the um, demoralization, preparing teachers to be demoralized. I think that's interesting, but I think she could speak better to it. But yes, I think there's uh, there's definitely. I'm going to go back to professionalism. I think like the challenges to teachers' professionalism. professionalism requires. Um, an open space for professional judgment where um, teachers are able to kind of think about um, I, I have an idea about what I want to enact in my classroom, and, and I'm gonna, considering all the um, the complexity of, of the case of my students and, and the school I'm in and all these other things, I'm gonna make professional judgments, I'm gonna, and an expert teacher is one that can do that with you know with ease. And and watching an expert teacher is a beautiful thing. Um, and I think there's been a tendency, sort of like this instrumental rationality, which is that we can sort of improve the efficiency of the system by micromanaging all the na- all the pieces of work, and that's been that's been going on. Um, you know, it, it's really kind of uh, the standards movement, standards and accountability movement. You know, from the mid '90s um, through, has been really good at at, um, at deprofessionalizing teachers. It's it's been doing it again and again. So it's it's um, uh, it's there. I think there was. I mean, I think you can say, well, there was. The intent with that was, you know, standards and accountability are a way of kind of creating creating equity in the system. We don't want we don't want mediocrity. We want uh, we don't want schools where um, there are these unperforming teachers. And so this is our way of kind of raising the bar for all. Yeah. And so maybe you can say, well, there's those those folks were actually thinking about the the, the good of schools. Uh, but I think there's also an interest. I, I agree with the second point too, which is that there's an interest in sort of. Um, deprofessionalizing teachers for the for the goal of bringing in privatization, um, undermining public education and I, I think we should be we should be very very careful about how we're going down the technology path. I think technology is great. I think there's a lot of opportunities there but it's a tool that might be used in ways that we're not we, we should we should be very thoughtful about I'm gonna I'm gonna pass this off to, to Doris. Uh,
3: thanks. Okay so. One of the things that I think has happened with a number of teachers who I've uh, spoken with in doing this work is the way in which they unwittingly participated in early versions of what was then weaponized against them. You know, so teachers who said, sure, of course we should have high standards. I'll help you write the standards. And then they suddenly find that what's being required, and so this is particularly salient in Virginia, right? I'm going to write these standards of learning, and now those standards of learning are a test. Right, so they initially did not show up as a test. It was, let's articulate what we want our students to know and be able to do. That seems like a really reasonable thing for teachers to take on, and let's have teachers be part of doing that work. They are the ones who should do it. And then when that's turned around, and okay, and now, here's how we're going to measure that, and here's the impact it's going to start having on your um, daily curriculum. Um, teachers are demoralized by having been part of that. Teachers become demoralized when they feel as though they are complicit in contributing to the harm of students to the profession and to the harm and the you know degradation of public schooling. And so that's really painful. And you know, I think one of the things I want to s- to make clear, if it hasn't been if it hasn't been made obvious already, is that in order to be demoralized, you have to be moralized. You know, and so we can envision a dystopian world which is not that hard to imagine where like perhaps people would be Um, I don't know, let's imagine this, trained in six weeks to participate in uh, certain strategies uh, that are promised to produce particular results but have no larger frameworks about teaching or learning in which to understand their work That is a scary picture to me, if we only have people working in that way. It could never happen. Okay. Um, And so, and and the thing is, is that we have people who are trained, and I say trained rather than educated, who are trained in that way, who have not had to think about competing frameworks, philosophical frameworks about ways in which uh, why we educate and how we educate um, and what learning is and what learning isn't um, and, and what it means to be a human being and have dignity or not, um, those people are taking experienced teachers' jobs. But if we build a system predicated on turnover, and predicated on h- having a very thin conception of the work, then demoralization isn't a problem, then teacher attrition isn't a problem, it's baked right in. And so, um, you know, I th- one of the things I do as a teacher educator, right, because this is one of the tensions I have, is that I write about this demoralization, and I'm looking at undergrads telling them... Um, why it's worth doing a a longer teacher education program where they really um, build some understandings about uh, the purposes of their practice is also to prepare them to resist because people who don't have frameworks don't resist, generally. Um, And so one of the, and that's why I wrote, the or co-edited the second book around principled resistance because I think um, in preparing teachers to go into this work, and these days we also need to prepare them for how to resist and the reasons that they'll need to give for their resistance.
1: I think we probably have time for one more audience question. I want to be mindful of our time here. Um, and there's there's a question on here that I'm going to ask a version of, and, else I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, somebody asked, are there other professions that experience demoralization? I'm going to turn that just a little bit and just say, in what ways would you say the issue of demoralization is unique to teachers?
4: Well, that's a real thinker. I The first part, I would say... Any profession in which we would consider helping professions the same ones that you'll read if you read in burnout literature, they talk a lot about the medical field, the psychological field, the counseling field. Anything that requires us to help others is susceptible to burnout, and I dare say susceptible to demoralization. I don't necessarily know it's purely unique to teaching. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of people I know in other professions who, The comments that you've made in your book were eerily similar to things that they have said. So I think this is perhaps a bigger concept at large. The ways that it's unique to teaching, I would say because we spend so much time thinking on what things should be and how it should be and how we should do it. It's built into our everyday. We write lesson plans and in those lesson plans there are objectives. And those objectives are not just checkbox things. They are, what do we want our students to accomplish and why? And they're not necessarily just facts. They're higher order thinking skills, their communication skills, their reasoning skills, their cultural interpretation skills. It's all those things that help people to be good citizens and function in society that are not strictly content. And so it is, it is literally embedded in every moment of every day, this, what do we want for our students? What do we want them to be? What do we want them to leave us with? What do we want them to understand? And what do we want them to do? It is constant. If I am, at least for me, if I am awake and there's a mention of education, that is what is going through my brain. And I don't, I can't speak to other professions because I am not in a different profession. This is my profession. This is my chosen profession. For me, this is my calling. But I do feel that perhaps it's, it's the amount of time that we reflect upon this that might be the difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Allison, what keeps you in your chosen profession?
4: I love it. I love my students. I love the impact that we have. I love the challenge of teaching. I love the thinking about the different like aspects of it, the facets of it, what we can give. I love the community I serve. I love the impact I have seen public education have I mean I do have a history degree so I'm not just thinking about immediacy I'm looking at you know trends over decades over centuries and you know the history of public education in the U.S. and the impact that's had on the citizens is tremendous and I know personally the impact that it has had on my family and what they've been able to do and see and, and become and I am very vested in making sure that that is available to generations well past my time and that's why I love it.
1: Um, I think we should give our terrific panel a round of applause for their, <laughs> sharing their perspective this afternoon. Um, there's, there's so many great questions that we weren't able to get to, but um, this is now, this is a community all of a sudden online, so you, we could answer each other's questions and some people were doing that. Um, thank you all for coming to this and for letting us Um, At Merck, enter your world um, and enjoy your time in Richmond. And uh, we, we are grateful for this time together. Thanks so much.